Father, we pray that you will help us to love you more and more. That we might not only be hearers of your word, but doers. Through the grace of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. On December 15, 1979, two Montreal journalists, Scott Abbott and Chris Haney, got together to play uh, Scrabble. And uh, as they were unpacking the game, they realized that some of the tiles were missing. As you can well imagine, it's very frustrating to pull out a game and realize that some of the important pieces are not there. They were frustrated. Haney particularly said, this is the, the sixth Scrabble set I've bought in the last couple of years. People losing pieces. So they kind of shoved the game aside and began to talk, and their, their talking turned to brainstorming, and their brainstorming to banter, and their banter turned to creativity, and within about 45 minutes, the game Trivial Pursuit that uh, became a, swept the nations of Canada and the U.S. and uh, sold to millions and made these two guys multimillionaires that game was born in that brief amount of time. Now, success didn't come easily or quickly to them. It was two years before the game was, was commercially released in Canada, and sales were slow. The first thousand or so sets, they were sold at a loss. But eventually it began to catch on, and people began to get excited about it, and stores couldn't keep it in stock. And, and then in 1982, when it was introduced to America, and then in 83, when it was distributed nationally, uh, Trivial Pursuit Mania was unleashed. And if you were uh, alive at that time and remember that, you remember how, how crazy it was to get it. I suspect that maybe second only to Monopoly, that uh, Trivial Pursuit has uh, published more varied editions of the game than any other board game. In addition to the six master games, or the Genesis editions, You'll find editions of six editions of Trivial Pursuit for juniors, and there's a Trivial Pursuit family edition. There are editions for specific eras and years. There are editions based on Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Saturday Night Live, Warner Brothers cartoons. Someone told me after earlier service today they have an edition on the, on the television show MASH. Uh, there's a book lover's edition. There's an edition that's all about biographies. There's an edition that focuses on pop culture and sports and television and country music. There's a computer edition, and there are at least six editions that you play by using a DVD. And there are anniversary editions. There's a 10th anniversary edition, a 20th anniversary. There's a greatest hits edition. And just recently, this year, 2008, the newest release is a 25th anniversary edition. Now, If you really are interested, if you have some extra money lying around and you can't think what you want to do with it, I have some ideas for you. But one idea is that uh, you can actually buy a a leather-bound edition of Trivial Pursuit. And it has gold embossing on it for anywhere between, depending on how you do it, $4,500 and $7,000. Now, you do need to know, if you're interested and you're thinking, hey, that might be something I want to get... Uh, you need to know that you cannot, they don't sell that edition in the U.S. or in Canada for some reason. But, so you've got to travel somewhere, but if you're willing to spend $7,000 on a board game, probably traveling somewhere wouldn't be a big deal. 
more than 75 million sets of Trivial Pursuit have been uh, sold in the 25 years that it's been out. And, and in March of this year, uh, Haney and Abbott sold all the gaming rights to Hasbro for $80 million. Now that got me thinking. I'm pretty sure that we have a Scrabble set down in the basement at home that has some tiles missing. I'm thinking I might get that out this afternoon and see what happens. Uh, we might come up with something out of that. For $80 million, it might be worth a shot. Well, the object of True Pursuit is you move around the board and you answer trivia questions. There are a thousand question and answer cards like these in every one of the editions of the game. And they're divided up into categories, and the categories correspond with colors. In the Genesis edition, the first edition of it, the uh, biography is blue and history is yellow. Arts and, uh, and literature is brown. Science and nature is green. Entertainment is pink. And sports and leisure is orange. And you roll a single die, and then you move around this board that looks like a wheel with six spokes on it. And every time you land on a colored space, someone asks you a question based on whatever category is connected to that color. And if you get it right, you get to go again. So if you, if you land on yellow, you ask her a history question. If you land on brown, you ask her answer an arts and, and literature question. And if you're right, you go again. If you're wrong, then you move on to the next person. Now, at the end of each of the spokes, there's a, there's a space called the category headquarters space. And, and if, you answer, if you land on that spot and you answer the question correctly, then you get a little wedge, pie piece wedge. And this is your game piece, and it has six little spots in it. It looks like a pie. And you put that piece in there, and you keep going around. And the object is to collect a, a color, a wedge, from each of the six colors. And you do that by landing on each of those spots at the end of the, of the uh, spoke and answering the question right. And when you get all six of those, then you move to the middle, to the hub, and you land on that spot. The other people playing with you get to choose the category. And if you answer that right, then you win the game. Now, the, this, the mania of this game through the years and others that have spun off of it and others even before it tells us that we are a culture that's impressed by people who know trivia. I suspect that's why these kinds of games are so popular. I suspect that's why a lot of the television game shows like Jeopardy and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And I'm thinking, who in the right mind would ever want to go on that show? I mean, that's just humiliation waiting to happen. You know, you know that you're not going to be smarter than whatever fifth graders they have on there. It's why it's so popular. Because there's something about like a value that we give to people who can recite trivia. And we like to play along in those games. You watch Jeopardy. You know, it's kind of fun to see how many of you can, how many of those questions you can answer, and uh, you feel kind of intelligent if you can answer some. I know I do once or twice a year when I get one right. Um, I mean, I, I, I listen to that show and I think I don't even—I've never heard of that before, much less that these people know the answer to that question. But Trivial Pursuit, ten, Trivial Pursuit tends to be a game that people either love or they hate. Now, I, I know people who simply will say. I'm not playing that game because their mind doesn't work in, in facts and, and those kinds of things that lend itself to trivial pursuit. And so they say, I'm not playing. And then there are other people who think it's the greatest game in the world because their mind does work to remember facts and, and figures and, and trivia like that. I mean, I, I like playing this game. I'm not saying that I'm very good at that. But it is, it's fun to try to see if I can get the answers to some of these obscure questions. But either way, whatever, however you view this game and others like it, 
It brings to light our tendency to assign value to one another based on what we know. And it might not be such a big deal if you're just playing games. But the issue is that it's not just limited to playing games. So often we use that same process of evaluation when we start talking about God and about Scripture and about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The inventors of Trivial Pursuit, interestingly, have been sued at least twice that I know of. Once they were sued by uh, a, a guy who was, these Dehaney and Abbott were up, I think it was in New Brunswick, and they were up, and there was a guy hitchhiking by the road. They picked him up. They began to talk, and this guy told them about this trivia game that he was thinking of, of inventing and putting together. And when their game came out, he said, hey, that's my game. And uh, he filed his lawsuit against them, and his mother was his primary witness. She said that she had seen him write some things down at home. The courts disagreed, and they dropped the suit. But they've also been sued by a guy who said that more than a fourth of the questions in the original game came from books he wrote about trivia. Now, what's interesting, he said, the reason I know that's true is because I, made, I put, some, I put some, uh, some intentional mistakes in my book so that nobody would copyright it. I mean, it wouldn't, wouldn't break the copyright. And I'm thinking, wow, now that is paranoia, to actually mislead people in your book of trivia so that other people won't steal what, you, what you've written down. And, and, and truthfully, you, you go to that Genesis edition and you look at it and there are the exact same uh, mistakes on the cards that are in his book. But they argued facts are not copyrighted. You can't copyright facts. They just are. And the district judge agreed and so did the uh, United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in California and eventually so did the Supreme Court. You can't copyright facts. But there's something in us that wants to believe that we get a corner on what we know about God. You know, we, that's, that's why we so often approach Scripture thinking, how can I prove my point? And Scripture becomes a place that, that we go to so that we can prove to people that they're wrong and we're right. And, and we think that we have, we have can corner the market on truth. I find that people who, who think that way are the people who probably are playing Trivial pursuit with the scriptures. Now, there are things that are core beliefs that, that we stand for and we fight about. You know, that, that we're willing to go to the wall for. That God is the creator and that Jesus is fully divine and fully human. And that salvation is only in Christ. That the Holy Spirit has come to us. That Jesus is returning. I mean, we, there are things, core things. And I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about the peripheral things. The things that we typically, as Christians, tend to argue much more about than the core things. Like, how did God exactly create? Or exactly how and when is Jesus going to return? And we, and we get so wrapped up in those kinds of peripheral things, and we think that we corner the market on truth, and we use the Scripture mainly to prove our points, and, and we miss the whole intent. It seems to me that people who want to beat us over the head with the Bible are probably playing trivial pursuit with the Bible. People who want to turn the Bible into a legalistic tool are probably playing trivial pursuit with the Bible. They know the words, but the words haven't gotten into them. They know what the Bible says, but they miss the spirit in which God says it. 
And if we believe that knowing the Bible is the end in itself, rather than the fact that the Bible is, is intended to point us to Christ and to loving relationships with others and, and to relationship with Christ, we're probably playing trivial pursuit with the Scriptures. Years ago, I, I knew a woman who, who had that kind of mindset about the Scriptures. She was one of the few college-educated people in the little church where she attended, and, and she loved to remind people of that. She knew the facts and the figures of the Scripture. I mean, she could quote the Bible like you couldn't, couldn't believe. And she was very intimidating about it. She knew the Bible. But she was also condescending and bitter and self-absorbed and very, very angry. And it took me a while, but I finally came to see that, that she didn't seem to ever move from knowing the Bible to knowing the truths of the Bible and living those truths. She didn't move from knowing about God to really knowing God, the heart of God. Now we sometimes, you know, we not only talk about trivia in relation to sort of general kinds of things, but we've created Bible trivia games too. And on the one hand, Bible trivia is sort of an oxymoron, it seems to me. But on the other hand, those games are good. They, they teach us, they help us to, you know, to learn things about the scriptures in a way that, that might be easier than just sitting down and trying to force ourselves to memorize and, and if it gets us into the scriptures and reading the scriptures, that's a good thing. And, and Bible, those kinds of Bible games are fine. As long as we don't just stop with them. See, the enemy's trick against us is subtle. If he can't get us to, to deny the scriptures, if he can't get us to, to say the scriptures really aren't the word of God, that they're not true, if he can't get us to say those things, then he will tempt us to worship the scriptures instead of to worship the one about whom the scriptures are written. The enemy tempts us to believe that if we defend the Bible and believe the right things about the Bible, then we don't, don't need to worry that much about living and obeying the Bible. Great evangelist Dwight Moody once said, the Bible wasn't given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. And we keep coming back to that. I would argue that neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament understands really this concept of trivia as it relates to Scripture. It's concerned with a far bigger purpose of how we live. The primary Hebrew and Greek words that are translated to know, more often than not, are describing an intimacy of relationship. And that's why in the older translations... It's the word translated, these words are used to describe even sexual relations. So you read in Genesis, in the old translations, Adam knew Eve, and she gave birth to a son. Those who know God are those who are intimate with God. And so Jeremiah says that the, the pagans do not know God. And it's not because they are unaware of his existence. It's not because they are saying, well, I've never heard of, of Yahweh before. They've heard of Yahweh and they know of his existence, but they reject him. And so Jeremiah says they don't know him. They don't have a relationship with him. When God sends disaster upon Israel and then restores them, it's so that they will know him and have a relationship with him. Jeremiah writes in chapter 4, My people are foolish and do not know me. My people... My people don't know me because they don't have a relationship with me. 
Paul admonishes the Corinthians, come to your senses, stop sinning. For to your shame, I say, some of you don't even know God. Not relationship with God. I suspect that one reason we are so easily tempted to seeing the scriptures with this mindset of trivial pursuit is that we really don't want to get into the deeper questions of life that God wants to get into. We are pretty good at ignoring the deeper and more important issues of life. And we, one of the ways we do that is by immersing ourselves in just trivia or just knowledge. So instead of being challenged about loving people, we just quote scripture. Instead of thinking about our bitterness and our unhealthy life decisions, we focus on rules and laws of Scripture, particularly the rules and laws that aren't really all that tempting to us. Instead of living a life surrendered to Christ, we fight and argue and we base our Christianity on those little pet peeves that are on the periphery. And we ignore the truth of what it means to be a believer of Jesus Christ. Instead of valuing people because of how they live for Christ, because of who they are, we value people because of what they know about Christ. One Christian organization recently did a survey and asked their readers, what do you look for in a mentor? And the responses were humility, vulnerability, a servant's heart, and a deep spiritual life. And the editor summarized the answers by saying, mentoring is not about what you know, it's about what kind of person you are. It's one thing to be smart. It's something else altogether to be godly and wise. And to be wise is to have strong convictions and to be knowledgeable about life. But it's also about to care about people and to value people and to integrate faith and life into everything that we do. It's to be like Jesus. But we're continually being tempted away from that mindset. One of the early church fathers, Serapion, lamented, the prophets wrote books and then our ancestors came by who, came who lived by them. And those who came later understood them from the heart and then came the present generation who copied them all down but then just put them on shelves unused. And it feels that way with us sometimes. We know what's in the books, we just, we just leave them on the shelf. And so Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. But if you want to boast, boast in this alone, that they know me and understand that I am the Lord who is just and righteous, whose love is unfailing, and that I delight in these things. And he goes on to say, God made sure that justice and help were given to the poor and needy and everything went well for him. Isn't that what it means to know me, asked the Lord? The Apostle John puts it even clearer. Anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is love. William Law, who was such a great influence upon John Wesley, said so many intelligent people seem so concerned for the truth, and yet they neglect the real purpose of the truth, and that is to bring us closer to the God of truth. Back in the 70s, there was a man in Taiwan who wrote, over the course of two years, 700 letters to his girlfriend trying to convince her to marry him. 700 letters. Pen and ink. 
He wrote her 700 letters for two years, trying to convince her to marry him. Eventually, she agreed to marriage. Except she didn't marry her boyfriend. She married the mailman who delivered the letters every day. guy is so wrapped up in writing letters, so wrapped up in, in expressing himself, he, he forgot about the need to just build a relationship with her. And sometimes we get so wrapped up in learning the Bible and knowing about God, we don't actually develop a relationship with God. And we're convinced that knowing information about God, knowing information about the Christian life, that that's the same thing as developing a relationship with God and living in the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ. But it's not. Jesus tells the religious leaders that they know the scriptures backwards and forwards and inside and out, but despite all their biblical knowledge, they reject, they've rejected God. And they've rejected him, the one whom God sent. And Jesus says, because of that, despite all that you know, when the day comes and you stand at the judgment place, I will say to you, I never knew you because you didn't have a relationship with me. So Paul warns the Colossians, the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and you will continually do good, kind things for others and all the while learn to know God better and better and better. You know, Focusing our attention on what we know instead of who we are and how we live is much less demanding, and I think that's why we do it. It's a lot easier to control. We get a lot more immediate return. It makes us look smart and important and worth something, but our perspective is always skewed. You know, in the Trivial Pursuit game board here, there are 12 spaces that say roll again. And those spaces can be very valuable, particularly about any time, but particularly if you're trying to get that last pie wedge. You're trying to get that last wedge on there, and, and you hit roll again, and it gives you a chance to, if you're here, it gives you a chance to roll a two and get there. But if you don't, if maybe you roll a four or a three, because a four you can go to that roll again, or a three you can go to this one, and you get to try it again. And hopefully you can bounce around roll again enough times that you get the right number you need to get on that square and hopefully get your pie piece. Well, you can also use it, not just for that case, but I tend to use roll again to avoid colors that I'm not very good at. You know, I mean, if I can get to an orange, that's what I want to get when I'm playing this game, because that's sports and leisure, and that's my better category, or maybe history or, or geography, but I tend to avoid science and nature. I don't know a lot about bugs and things. And so I'll use roll again to jump all over the board to get to a question that will be easier for me. And I suspect that most of us have a tendency to treat Scripture the same way. Sometimes we work hard to avoid the places in Scripture that that we find difficult to understand, even though God wants to help us understand. Sometimes we ignore parts of Scripture because... They aren't what we like or because we know they're going to convict us. They're going to be hard on us. And so we want to tend to read the scriptures that we know are going to make us feel good. They're going to affirm what we do well, that are easy, that are going to connect with us. And all the while, God is wanting to say something to us in those scriptures that we're avoiding. Things that we desperately need to hear in order to change the direction of our lives from 
from the, the bad way it's going to the good that God wants for us. Because we're so enamored with what's comfortable and easy, we miss so much of it. Maybe you need to read the Gospels more because there's some parables there that, that God wants to use to, to really get to, into you. Maybe you need to read Paul's epistles more because you need to be confronted and convicted by some of the admonitions that Paul makes to the churches. Maybe it's the Old Testament prophets because you're not so sure that justice and how we treat people is all that big of a deal. Maybe it's historical books because you've come to the conclusion that if it's not new, it's not any good. And we need to understand that God has great things to say to us from the past and from history. I'm not in any way advocating that we abandon the scriptures. I mean, too many people have made that choice to their own peril and to the peril of many, many others. Because we believe the Bible is God's inspired word. And we believe that God has given us the scriptures as his word to us. And that the scriptures are true. And so we want to value the scriptures and embrace the scriptures and study the scriptures. Some of you, like the Trudels, have spent a great part of your life helping other people gain the scriptures in their own language so that they can more fully understand it. But we don't do even those kinds of things just so people have knowledge. So that the scriptures can get into people's lives and bring about change through the grace of God and the Holy Spirit. Reading the scriptures and studying them and meditating the scriptures and, and memorizing the scriptures, that's not the problem. In fact, we ignore the scriptures to our gravest peril. The scriptures are our lifeblood. The psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And Paul tells Timothy the scriptures are so good, so useful for us for teaching, rebuking, and training, correcting righteousness. But if we read and study and meditate and memorize, and it doesn't have any bearing on how we live, then we're just simply playing spiritual, trivial pursuit. If our immersion in the scriptures doesn't encourage us or convict us or challenge us or enlighten us or teach us, if the scriptures don't lead us to a deeper level of love for God and of love for one another, then we're just playing spiritual, trivial pursuit. We're missing the whole point. And when you read this third chapter of Philippians, you read about Paul who knows the scriptures as well as anyone. Paul, who has a heritage of scriptural truth. Paul, who knows all about the deepest things of God. And what does he say is his pursuit? I want to know Christ. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him, Unto death. Paul's pursuit is I want to know Christ. What's yours? What's your pursuit? To know about Christ or to know Christ? Gracious Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the the amazing privilege that we have. 
your word available to us in so many different ways that we can learn and study. We're so grateful to you. Father, may the pursuit of our lives not be, not end with the knowledge of the word. May the pursuit of our lives be to know Christ. To know Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.